Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Hope you're having a good day. If you're listening to the podcast at the end of the day, if this is starting out your day or in the middle of the day, my guest and I hope you have a good day. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Suzanne Stott. Welcome to the podcast, Suzanne. Suzanne Gardner Stott. There's a dance teacher named Suzanne Stott, and I'm often mistaken for her. And you'll find Suzanne on Facebook as Suzanne Gardner Stott. And so I'm glad that we clarified that. Um, Suzanne is somebody I got an anonymous letter. Um, and sometimes my people ask me, how do you find guests? And most of them are inbound communication to me. Um, somebody reaching out, but somebody nominates somebody sometimes. In this case, it was an anonymous letter talking about Suzanne's work in our community. And as I read that letter and pondered, I thought, I really need to have Suzanne on the podcast. So this is my idea and the anonymous guest's idea. And really glad that Suzanne agreed to do this. Um, she is an active Latter-day Saint, has 10 kids, um, is divorced. She may talk about that. She's been on her own for a long time. Most of the podcasts will talk about her work as an LGBTQ ally. I've been on this road for a whole six years. Um, Suzanne has been on this road for decades. And um, she will talk about how to do how she has done that at least as an active Latter-day Saint and supportive of LGBTQ people, both in and outside of our church. And if you're new to this space as a parent, as a local leader, as a friend, I think our joint prayers hearing Suzanne's story will help you. Because I certainly, when I want stepped in this space, wanted to be committed to my church. I love my church and the doctrine, but also wanted to support LGBTQ people. So is that okay for an introduction, Suzanne? Yes. I may have mentioned she's in her 70s, so um, she has been on this road for a while. And I'll just turn it over to you, Suzanne, to share your story. Thank you. I appreciate being on this podcast. I actually listened to Richard's podcast and have learned so much from the many, many guests. And I want to begin by saying I really love living at this time. There is so much to learn and devour from the Come Follow Me podcasts to the conferences, from the pop culture. For example, even though I'm 78, I'm a total Marvel fan and I'm waiting for the new Black Panther. I spent most of the weekend absorbing Weird Al songs because I love his new movie, Weird Al Yankovic, for those of you that don't know. Uh, I took grandchildren to Lizzo. I took others to the Harry Potter Symphony. And that same weekend, I went to the ballet. All I'm saying is there are so many things to be concerned about right now. If we talk about human rights violations in Iran or China, uh, famines in Europe, I mean, in Africa, we can, we can really focus on those and we need to try to do something about them. But I try to just um, focus on the good and do things that uplift and energize me and those around me. I want to tell you, first of all, that I was born of goodly parents. My parents were very simple people, but they had great integrity and they were hard workers and they were fun. Uh, my father would grab my mother and just start dancing. He would pull pranks on people. He was the state stake patriarch. And as a stake high councilman, he organized community events in our little community in West Point, Utah. And he really had a love for everyone. And we learned that. He modeled for my eight siblings and I how to reach out to others, how to be fun, and how to be a man of great faith. And plus, they loved poetry, <laughs> and they recited poetry to us. And so some of my brothers and I, uh, especially my brothers, can recite hours of poetry by heart. I have eight extraordinary siblings. I know everybody says their siblings are the best, but mine really are. They're community and civic-minded. They're true to their faith. They have been so kind and generous to me throughout the years as I became a single parent with 10 kids, and they still support me to this day. To give them a Christmas present one time, I worked for eight years writing histories of our ancestors and then presented that to them in a book. 
I am close to my ancestors. I feel their presence. I love them. I know that they had many faults and maybe weaknesses, but I admire their example and the fact that they remain true to their beliefs. Now, I want to tell you things that led up to me being a grand marshal of the Pride Festival this year in Utah. And let's just stop. I mean, that I love what you've said so far, but it's just remarkable that you're about to tell us you're the Grand Marshal of the Pride Parade as an active Latter-day Saint. I just want our listeners to sort of pause and go, wow, what she just said is true. And now you, I hope that's okay. I hope I didn't interrupt your trend of thought, but it's a really remarkable thing you're about to share with us. Really, it isn't remarkable, (laughs) but uh, you have to understand things that led up to that. And I have to mention this because our family, we are Democrats. And if you were a Democrat growing up when I did, you had to have a pretty thick skin. Uh, I was used to being active in campaigns, going door to door, attending conventions. I mentioned that my dad was a patriarch. I don't say that to brag by any means, but that when he was called... There were many that said, wait a minute, he's a Democrat. How could he be the patriarch? I uh, protested the Vietnam War at BYU. Wow. When I was a student there, I got suspended. (laughs) And then in the, but I got reinstated right away. But uh, I, in 1965, I was living in California. And two times I went, listened to, and met Dr. Martin Luther King. I was profoundly impacted by what he said and the way he presented himself. Now, you will think, big deal, so you met Dr. King. This was 1965. This is way before the priesthood declaration for all black male members. This is when there were billboards in Utah saying that Dr. King was a womanizer and a communist. This was the time of the John Birch Society. So going to meet Dr. King was not viewed favorably by many people that I knew. But the big thing is, so I met him, big deal. It's what I did about it is that I really made a decision that I was going to try to do what I could to always stand up and speak out. And I went through many faith crises throughout my life. Now, remember, this is the 60s, so I was really upset about our black policy. I heard those abominable statements about people that were gay. And then, of course, I had a lot of issues about women. So when I was asked to go down and protest the ERA, it was like an assignment. I said, no, I will not. Why would I oppose something that I believe in? So I came to terms with a lot of things before my mission. I had a very significant experience Uh, revolving around the atonement. And so I turned all my protesting into proselyting in northern Germany. And uh, my mission was very, very hard, but it was uh, pivotal. I I loved it. And I still think 60 years later, I'm impacted by that service. While on my mission, I had to deal with the great questions of evil and suffering because I I had Seder, Passover with Holocaust victims, Auschwitz victims in Berlin one year. I had to come to terms with the class system in Europe, with sexism, with uh, because I was a Palestinian Arab refugee a believer in their rights, so I had to come to terms with all that. And at one point in my mission, I was just overcome with all the evil and, and, and injustice in the world. But I worked really hard on that and understanding Christ's atonement in the little minuscule way that I do, I came to terms with that and realized I just need to focus my life on doing what I could to alleviate suffering. So back to the LGBTQ, I'm I'm just an ally. I had friends in high school that died by suicide who were gay. They weren't called gay at that time. They were called fairies but they committed suicide right after graduation. And I had uh, cousins that came out in the late 80s whose father was an All-American athlete. 
So while they were made fun of and people spoke with them with great derision, I knew, wow, wait a minute, they wouldn't choose to be gay and go through all this. So I I had to really do my homework. Plus, there was an elder in my mission who came out, and he later died of AIDS, but he lived with my husband and me for a time, and I really understood that he just wasn't confused. He wasn't just experimenting. He was actually gay. That's who he was. And unfortunately, it couldn't be acknowledged at that time and celebrated. So I have done a lot of reading about the chemical compositions you know, of gay and straight people in their brains. I've interviewed countless gay and lesbian people in my work and in because they're my friends. And my experience is that I don't have any doubt about the sexuality. I knew that they aren't just trying to get attention or just experimenting. It is who they are. And when I hear people act in a, like a patronizing way, oh, he came to church and, oh, the bishop shook his hand. I think, well, why wouldn't he shake his hand? It should happen anyway. So in the early 90s, I was approached by a gay couple. They asked me to help them adopt a baby. I ran an agency for the adoption of special needs children because, you know, Joni Mitchell's song, I looked at life by both sides now. Well, you can look at adoption both sides too. You can either, you can find good reasons for it and good reasons against it. But I was working to help special needs children, meaning older sibling groups, children who'd been abused, children with mental and physical handicaps, find homes. So this couple approached me, and I knew instinctively that these two men would be just as good a parents as any straight parents I knew. There was no question. So I went to bat for them, and I had to deal with comments and questions. Like, well, how could I approve anybody for adoption that couldn't take their child to the temple? And wouldn't the child become gay? And weren't they just confused? How would they provide role models? Well, here I was, a single parent of 10 kids, struggling to provide my own role models for my kids. And obviously, they found the same role models, wonderful family members, neighbors, church congregation, And what about the ceiling? Oh, I had more people ask me. And I would tell them, well, wait a minute. I have four kids that can't be sealed to me because I'm a woman. So I feel that's very unjust, but that's the way it is. So I didn't worry about things like that. And those children are children that you adopted after after your divorce. Mm -hmm. Just so our listeners understand. Well, one of them, my husband had already... Uh, become an apostate, and he wouldn't go to the temple. He so. couldn't. So one of so then I had three others. Thank you. So, and really, there are so many more social workers that are more astute, really, than I. I uh, don't consider myself gifted in any way in that area, but I was able to navigate the laws of Utah. Remember, this was thirty years ago. There was no same-sex marriage. That was out of the question. So it was tricky. But I did it step by step without breaking any laws. And it was very gratifying because it was just about creating families. And gay and lesbian people have the same desires as straight people. They don't want to make statements. They didn't want to, you know, be on a bandwagon about their rights. They just wanted to have children sit around the table and talk about the day with their children, establish a bedtime routine, tell stories, you know, traditions, establish traditions. They were no different than any of us. So as as they heard about me helping this couple and it was successful, then more and more of them contacted me. And I don't really know the number because I didn't keep track, but I think it was 50 to 65 children that I helped uh, find homes for, help the couples adopt. And during this time, I was State Relief Society president. I was primary president. I was board choir leader and never had a moment's thought. I'm serious. Maybe I'm just a dull tool, but it never, I never had any consternation about this because I felt so strongly 
in these good parents. And leading up to this, in 1984, I began sponsoring Cambodian refugees. And I remember someone in my ward asking me, well, aren't you going to talk to the bishop about this? Well, what was there to talk about? Like I said, as a Democrat, you're used to having a thick skin and standing up and speaking out. And so I became involved in refugee resettlement, which I have done continuously since 1985, in 1984. And seriously, if you want to be blessed beyond measure, get involved in refugee resettlement. It's very hard. It's a lifelong thing. But gosh, it's rewarding because of the people that you meet. So my life has been defined by special needs adoption, many with abuse, mental illness, brain damage, physical handicaps, addictions. And those are the types of children that I adopted. And now I have grandchildren, some of whom deal with those same issues. I lost two grandchildren last year, and that's been extremely hard and painful. But what I've learned, and the Lord probably needed to teach me this, is that I just love my kids for who they are. And really, they are fabulous human beings. I just marvel that they are in my life. I have 10 people that aren't biologically connected who joined the family at different ages and from different places, but they are very loyal to each other. I don't know how it's going to work in the next life, but I think that we're going to join with 20 other birth parents and with numerous, maybe hundreds of birth family members and with my large family of thousands of ancestors and descendants, we're going to connect. I truly believe this in really wonderful ways as the whole of mankind connects. And I think there will be Wonderful healing, wonderful healing at that time. I don't know if it'll happen in this life, but I feel certain it will happen in the next life. So for the last 12 years, I've been in the African refugee branch in that community. And through my volunteer work in the community and my church work in that community, my testimony has been so strengthened, not only because of the amazing individuals in the refugee community, but the workers that work with me in the branch and in the community. You know, I know Mormons have no monopoly, LDS people have no monopoly on goodness. Some of the best people I've met in my whole life are members of other religions. Uh, This spring, I went down to speak at the Imperial Potentate um, ceremony for a dear friend, for some Shriners. They are not members of our church, but wow, those Freemasons, those Shriners, they are the bomb when it comes to helping the world. And I just love them so much. And I have mentioned before that the best marriage I know is a Palestinian refugee couple living in Beersheba over in the West Bank in Israel. So I just learned that there's goodness everywhere, but these people that you serve with, especially in the church, are just so magnificent. They are just so wonderful. I can't tell you how I love going to church and being with these people, with the people that serve with me. And then I've had a son in and out of the criminal justice system. Well, two sons for 26 years. have a son incarcerated now in a penitentiary in uh, California. So throughout these 25 years, I've dealt with that. Then I have another child who was became into the homeless. Uh, he he became homeless ten years ago, so I have dealt with many many homeless issues, and because my children are all children of color, I have dealt with many instances of blatant racism and white privilege. So my life has been filled with uh, these kinds of involvements. But I am always filled with the wonder of creations. You cannot look at the web telescope. Those photos, they just totally blow me away. I, I don't even have the words. I'm so astounded at God's wonders. And my favorite poet, Gerard Manley Hopkins, he already wrote about God's grandeur. But now we're seeing it in those telescope pictures. 
But at the same time, again, Joni Mitchell, both sides now, I realize how weak and goofy I am. But I feel the hands of God's in my life. And so I live with continual reverence for that. I love the restored gospel. I support our church leaders. I know there's so much that I don't understand. And there are things that I wish would change. I wish that LGBTQ brothers and sisters would have full fellowship in our church, including temple marriage. I wish that women could play greater roles. And I pray mightily that every conference there will be an announcement of women in the Sunday school presidencies or in the bishoprics and men in the primary presidencies. But, you know, I'm willing to just hang in there and do my part every day and pray for greater change and enlightenment. And uh, like I said, I may not be very bright, but I'm too busy to even worry about it most days. My days are very full. And so that sort of sums up who I am and what I'm doing. I'm just so moved, Suzanne, as you've moved through your life, taking us all the way back to the Vietnam War and where we are today. Um, are you okay if I ask you some questions? Yes. Um, I've thought about, as we've visited before, um, I've thought a lot about prayers, and you're open what you pray for for women and LGBTQ. And I would, I, there's nothing in the handbook that says, we as committed Latter-day Saints, what we need to pray for. And so there are some people praying for what you pray for. And I hope as we open up, if we opened up with what we're praying for to trusted friends, that we don't cause people to feel like unfaithful Latter-day Saints. You're both praying for um, what you prayed for and you support the leaders. And so I just share that because this is a podcast to try to create space for people in the church that want to stay in the church, but also feel things hopefully will change in certain areas. So let's don't call them the people that are being deceived. You've probably heard all this stuff, the sifting of the elect and you're being sifted. I think we should just look at Suzanne's life and other lives that have just dedicated so much of their life to serving others and honor their prayers and your feelings. And I've, I heard a story This last week from Deb. Deb, if you're listening, you'll know what Deb this is just talking about. And I've heard this type of story several times. And this may have happened to your own families. Active Latter-day Saints in the 60s and 70s praying that black people would get the priesthood. I didn't, you know, I don't know how they would be received by their fellow Latter-day Saints if they opened up about those prayers. It was really praying for a change in doctrine. And that change in doctrine happened. And I'm careful not to infer that that's going to happen for LGBTQ people, but I'm open that it's possible. Any thoughts on just that topic? It's a tender topic, but I I love the way you just talked about your prayers. You know, in the 60s, it was really volatile because racism was just so ugly. Um, This uncle I mentioned who was an All-American, he played in the NBA. And he would travel with his teammates, and yet he would be able to stay in a hotel in a certain part of town, but his teammates would have to go to another part of town. And I remember when Nat King Cole came to Utah. He couldn't stay at the Hotel Utah. Nat King Cole came to Utah. These things are humiliating, horrible, and awful. And yet it was almost sanctioned because of that priesthood policy, which... I don't even think was um, a revelation from God. And it caused so much contention at ball games, at uh, rallies. It, it, it was horrible in the 60s to try to navigate that. And I didn't for a while. I quit going to church. I was so mad. And some, you may have heard of members that uh, were very vocal and began baptizing members of the church in their swimming pools. I mean, there were just so many people speaking out. And I chastised myself because I was mad. But I don't remember ever kneeling down and praying, Heavenly Father, change this, change this, because it was so ingrained in me. The dogma was so 
the dogma was so pervasive that they were neutral in heaven or that they weren't worthy or that Satan was black and oh, so many things you heard. Oh, it just makes me sick when I think of it. And as I said, I came to terms with it because I thought somewhere in all this, the Savior's still there. And all this hatred and misunderstanding is already atoned for. So I'm just going to try to connect with him some way and hope I can figure this out eventually. Now, I haven't really ever figured it all out because it's caused so much pain. And I've seen what my children have had to go through and so many other children who were adopted. I saw as an adoption worker trying to help parents who were adopting black children, even getting them convinced that there was white privilege. And so many of them called me an alarmist and said, oh, if you'd quit talking about it, it would go away. Well, duh. And their kids have really suffered. Now, every experience isn't my experience. I adopted older children who were very firm in their black identity. And whether it was a service or not to bring them to Utah, I don't know. Sometimes I feel really bad. Uh, I did the kind of adoption that uh, where a lot of the children were in the system. And for most of those children, I didn't take any subsidies because I didn't want it to be about money. I wanted those kids to know I took them because I felt good about them. But, you know, again, I'm the kind of parent that just knowing a child needed a home was enough for me. I didn't have to have any heavenly manifestation. Whereas a lot of people were a lot more prayerful and they had to believe that that child was meant for them and they had to rush to the temple the minute it was legal. And I wasn't like that. I mean, to me, it was enough that I was providing a home for a child. And the last child I adopted at age 18, he he wouldn't have thought of going to the temple with me at all because he thought LDS people were racist. So. You know, there's a lot of different ways to look at these things. But I will say that back in the 60s, it was very, very different. It was so contentious. And uh, I came to my peace and then was, of course, sobbed like a baby in 1978. Where were you? Do you remember where you were when you heard? Would you share that with us? Yeah, I was at home and my former husband called me. He was in tears and we just, we just sobbed. We could not even believe it. Now, and I know a lot of people say this, I wish that it had been possible for our wonderful church leaders to go a step further and say, we would like to apologize most deeply for this highly offensive policy, which hurts so many people. But they have done that in their own way, and I have to accept it. You know, they've reached out in many other ways. I have written letters to some of our apostles, and they have answered me back, amazingly enough. (laughs) I don't know if there's a file on me at church headquarters, but their letters have been very kind and affirming. And I know I don't have a clue. I don't even understand one, you know, thumbnail of what our church leaders have to deal with. And so I want to be so fair and supportive to them. And just, I mean, we walk by faith. So that's what I'm doing. I'm just so moved. I've never had anybody on the podcast with sort of this long view of multiple social issues we've faced um, that have, you've personally been involved with. It's not theoretical for you. It is frontline work. With the Vietnam War, with blacks, with Dr. King, with ERA, with refugees, with homeless, with incarcerated, with women, with race. It's just every social issue where there's tension in our church and in our world, in our political system. You have been on the front lines of being with those people. Well, and maybe I was wrong, but I had to speak out. I hated that war. And I had classmates die in that war. And I, I know some soldiers say it was the best thing that ever happened to them. And I know others, personally, it's messed up their life forever because of the PTSD that they have, because of so many other things. And for me, when Nixon lied to us about bombing Cambodia, 
that was the final straw for me. So when I saw in 1984, Cambodian, a little thing on the TV that said Cambodian refugees from the Khmer Rouge, in other words, from that war, were coming to Salt Lake City. I knew my prayers had been answered about working with refugees because I had never been able to go to the Gaza Strip and work with Palestinian refugees. And I just visited some of my Cambodian refugee friends last week. And we, I just love them so much. They are the best people. They're Cambodian Christian reform. They've never had a handbook. They've never had, you know, a bishop's order. They've never had a come follow me manual. But they are just so in love with the Savior and doing his will, despite what happened to them in those camps and in escaping it during the jungle which still is with them to this day. But they're just happy, wonderful people. Gosh, how could I not be blessed to be with them? Talk about you got angry once and you said this already and you didn't go to church for a period of time. I think that can happen to listeners um, where they get angry with a talk, with a comment, with, and I don't think, it's always out of malice. I think probably most of the time it's not out of malice. It's just a worldview that I don't want to use shaming language. It's perhaps not fully developed or listen to people in that group as we talk about them. I'm going to give Grace how I talk about this. But my real question is, I've learned when people get angry, I've learned to validate that. And you, how did you get over your anger and come back to the church? Well, number one, I, I didn't lose my faith ever. That first vision of Joseph Smith is so ingrained in me. I don't care which version <laughs> you want to take. <laughs> I really believe. And I, I, was, uh, I became a ward organist in the seventh grade and was ward organist all through high school, junior high and high school. And I was playing How Lovely Was the Morning one time and I had a feeling go through me. And I, I knew, no matter what anybody says, you know, that I made, maybe ate too much hot sauce that day. I knew that that was the Holy Ghost telling me that vision was true, that it did happen. Now, exactly how, what, where, whatever, I don't know. So I never doubted that Joseph Smith saw that vision. And so I, I believed thereby that this church has some truth and that God is, it isn't the only truth in the whole world, but I believe it has the truth about the restored religion. So even through my days of protesting, I never lost my testimony, but I was confused. As I told you, the Vietnam War, that was a sore point. And why weren't we speaking up about it? At, at, at BYU in my classes, they were actually using the Book of Mormon, some of those Republican conservative professors to say that it was a God was sanctioning this war and that we needed to totally escalate and bomb North Vietnam and et cetera. You know, some, well, there were films they showed and there was all this propaganda and I didn't believe it. And the same thing with the women's uh, equal rights amendment. When people said, oh, you've got to vote against it. Pregnant women will be on the They'll be fighting battles on the front lines. I mean, there were the most ridiculous things going around about that. And if you break it down, all it's saying is women need equal pay. They need equal rights to get credit cards. Well, you know what I'm saying. It was just so dumb. And then the combination of the women's and the Vietnam War and then the issues with uh, racism, I just thought, oh, my gosh. Plus, I dropped out of college. And I'd gone to California to make an album. Tell us with about my that. boyfriend. Well, he wrote songs, and I thought they were pretty good. And so I dropped out of college, and my parents blessed their hearts. They must have been terrified, but they gave me permission to go. So I went down and lived in Southern California for a couple of years. But I didn't do drugs, and I didn't smoke weed. I was just mad at the church. So I didn't go to church. And I just had to work some things out. 
did you get back to church? Because sometimes when you're separated from the church, it's kind of hard to go back. You want to go back, but you sometimes don't know how to go back. Any thoughts on how that worked for you? Parents that continue to love me. I had tremendous battles with my dad about the church because at that time, I thought, why religion? People are just concerned about blowing some trumpet in heaven. What does it all mean and who cares? You know, I was just into let's end the famine in Biafra. (laughs) Let's end this war. And I had a lot of arguments with my dad. And my boyfriend was very agnostic, even though he'd been raised LDS. And we came to Utah one time for at Christmas. And uh, my we'd had kind of a big argument with my dad about all these things. I'd gone back in history about the War of the Roses, everything that religion had caused that was horrible. And I said, if you can show me, Dad, where it's done more good than bad, then go ahead. You know, I was just so defiant and obnoxious. A true hippie weirdo freak is what I was. And uh, my dad just sat us down and he told us about an experience that he had had. He had had to drop out of high school in Star Valley, Wyoming and herd sheep to support his family of 13 siblings. His dad had died of Parkinson's. And he had had, and he told about the time he'd lost his horse and it was getting cold. And if I say Star Valley, is what I really mean, not Star Valley. <laughs> it's so cold up there. And he prayed and prayed, couldn't find his horse, and was getting very worried. So he knelt down and said a prayer. And as he got up from his knees, his horse was touching his shoulder. And my boyfriend said, oh, that's so stupid. And I thought, boy, that's true. My dad's telling me something that's true. So I went back to California, and we had just received kind of a contract uh, with our agent to start recording our songs officially. But I knew it said in my patriarchal blessing I would go on mission, even a foreign mission. And I believed in that. So I had to do some lots of repenting and forgiving but I came to terms with that and came back. And first time I'd been to church, really, in almost two years, was my, the week before my mission farewell. Happened very fast. So I'm not saying that's the way to go. You know, a long-term repentance and preparation would have been much better. But my family never gave up on me. Remember, I have these eight amazing siblings and their spouses. And uh, the Lord never gave up on me. It's a beautiful story. You know, this podcast is supportive of people that are trying to stay in the church. There's a lot of listeners that are sort of navigating complex issues, and that's where I think that's one of your gifts to those listeners is just your personal story. Um, I did a Twitter poll where if you're in a faith crisis, are you trying to find a way to stay or to leave? And most are trying to find a way to stay and work through that. Like you have, you talk about, I don't get that because if you have a calling, you will feel God's presence because he'll tell you how to achieve that calling. I cannot tell you the times the stake relief society president. And you can tell that I'm kind of a nutter and I always have a Marvel character or a mystery on my mind, but the Lord gets through to me about who to go see and what to do. And that's beyond my capabilities. I just had that happen last week with one of the members of our branch. And I thought, wow, thank you, Heavenly Father. I'm more concerned about weird Al Yankovic's new movie, but you're getting through <laughs> as to how to help this person. And so, seriously, it sounds so corny, but try to get a calling. I don't care if it's doing the arrangement of flowers in Relief Society, especially leading, uh, becoming the primary chorister. You can never go less active or not believe if you're leading those primary songs. So I know that sounds kind of outlandish giving all the concerns right now. But once I had that experience with the Savior and I was so happy he would forgive me, 
and that I could keep repenting, I thought, wow, I'm just going to stay on this path because I'm so happy about the atonement. Talk about, um, you've really kind of done this. I'm thinking of younger Latter-day Saints that are very drawn to the very issues you were drawn growing up. They're wired just like you. <laughs> um, and I think there's more of them wired this way than perhaps there even was in your generation that are just, they look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and they say, what is it doing for the most marginalized? And what's my oh, church doing? Sure for the most marginalized, and they look at refugees, they look at LGBTQ, sure, and they want to be involved, in, but then they have dissidents because the church isn't quite where they want them to right. be. And, and you've sort of navigated this dissidence, this, these paradoxes of believing in the church, but also wishing the church would change stuff or being angry at the church. How do you, I don't, I, Talk to people that are in the paradox or the cognitive dissonance. How would you give them advice on how to navigate the paradoxes and the cognitive dissonance that they feel? You know, prayer and meditating are very, are very good. But I would say become involved. You know, helping me, helping Cambodian refugees resettle as I have for all these years, that really eased my pain about the Vietnam War. That healed me from that horrible war because I could help people directly impacted by it and do my little bit. And so I say, and I was always passionate about refugees. I mentioned that I've had, I had uh, pictures of Palestinian refugees on my wall when I was in eighth grade. And, you know, my parents wondered where in the world did this kook come from? But they never shut me down. You know, I was always affirmed. So I say, find what your passion is. Now, seriously, the homeless shelter can always use volunteers. You want to get your life in perspective, go down there and serve. Go down there and do the laundry. Go down there and help the kids with homework or help a refugee child with homework or mentor a refugee family. Or do something with climate change. They're, we're trying to save the Great Salt Lake. Sign up and get involved. We're trying to help some people in some... Anyway, we're trying to help it be real to everybody that climate change is real. <laughs> or just saving our trails up in the canyons. Uh, you know, appreciating the spiral getty, going out to the sun tunnels. There are so many wonderful things to become involved in right here in Utah. But you have to know what that is for you. Because if you do, I just find these things take care of themselves if you're doing something bigger than yourself, larger than yourself. And you can't take some of your problems, and I'm not saying they're petty, but they become in perspective when you start helping other people that have perhaps survived being buried in a pit with your dead father on top of you or being gang raped or watching your kids macheted, you know, uh, teach a dance to youth. There, any talent that you have, really, I am not that talented, but every talent I have has been used in the Swahili branch. I have choir. I can play the piano by ear. I'm not a great pianist. I'm not a trained pianist. But I play those songs in Kurundi and Kiriwanda and Swahili by ear. And our choir is the bomb. Just a little talent I have. And so the Lord uses people with greater talents than I have to do truly remarkable things. But I just believe in doing really good things in quiet ways. Um couple thoughts that come to my mind as you talk about how you turn to serving others to sort of get through the anger and get through the paradoxes. I love that. And I thought of social media. That wasn't available to you. No. <laughs> and I wondered if one of the negatives of social media is people turn there to vent their anger. And I'm on social media and see a fair amount of that. And I've wondered if I'm not negative about social media, but if you spend your time venting your anger there, you're not doing what you were able to do, which is sort of go out and serve people that it healed you. I'm not sure social media is going to heal you from the anger you feel. It's, I'm not 
inviting people to turn off social media. It's just a thought for all of us to consider the role in social media that can fester anger in a way that's not the path to long-term yeah. healing. Yeah. That you're, you didn't, you just naturally said, I'm going to go serve people. You know, I, uh, I have involved many people in my son who's incarcerated, and that's given them a perspective about white privilege. Now, I didn't try to hammer it, you know, into their heads or cram it down their throats. I just told them examples. And the last example for this particular son is he was driving down Redwood Road here in Salt Lake City, not bothering a soul, in his truck, which was registered. He had a driver's license. He saw the police start following him. They followed him for one and a half miles. They turned on their light. He signaled, and they got him for not signaling for three seconds. Now, you and I know that is totally absurd. For a white person, we wouldn't even think, or maybe we wouldn't even signal. We'd just turn. But for a black man covered in tattoos that has a big rap sheet, that was a big deal. So he was pulled over for no other reason. In fact, I questioned the, those policemen at the trial. I said, well, I go to that African market where he was all the time, and you've never followed me. Because they said they summarily follow people that they're distrustful of. You could be really mad about that. That could eat me up inside so badly that I would want to go hit somebody walking down the street. <laughs> I understand rage. But I put it in a different way in that I told my son's story and asked them to write letters to the judge. Or I told them to contact so-and-so and start writing to an inmate. Now, I know they're not going to change people's lives. The recidivism is so great. I don't know what will happen. But the point is they'll be putting their energy into something that's really worthwhile, that can really affect change. I mean, if we all get together on some of these things, maybe there won't be so many black men incarcerated. So it's just a matter of where you want to put your energy. And I can be looked as a Pollyanna. I know that. Or I'm Mary Poppins. So? I love that. I love channeling rage. And I love how you mentioned earlier that the atonement kind of healed you at times. Um, oh, yeah, because it made me so grateful. So I think there's a role in the Gosh. atonement to heal our rage and anger. Oh, absolutely. We're all, we're all so fraught with frailties and inconsistencies and you know, every day I start a new diet or I'm not going to drink Dr. I, wait, I'd never drink Dr. Pepper, Diet Coke. <laughs> and I, you know what I'm saying? We're so inconsistent. The Lord is so generous in forgiving us. Steve Young in his book, The Law of Love, talks about non-transactional relationships. Yeah. And it seems like you won't like me giving you compliments, but I, I sense you're no. doing this not for reward in heaven and not to be praised, but just because it's just wired in you. It makes you happy. I've said it many but times. It's not like it's a transaction. It's not like this is a checklist thing. Exactly. For a greater reward now or later. It's just pure love of Christ and wanting to, and I, I just love your ministry and your personal ministry. There's no, handbook for what you've done. I think that's one of the things that's beautiful about it. You've had callings in the church that come through normal channels, and you've obviously accepted those, but you've also self-determined ways you're going to serve there outside the church, and you've learned how to do both of that. And uh, well, I'm trying. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm, many times I'm not the best example of a disciple of Christ, but I just love that I believe he keeps taking me back and saying, okay, let's try again. But the people that I minister to, they are truly the least of these. And I know how much they love Jesus. They have been through things that you and I cannot even imagine, meaning I'm thinking of the refugees, both the, the Cambodian and the Vietnamese and the Hmongs and the African that I've worked with. and. Many times when I would think, well, for example, our 
my little Swahili choir was asked to sing at a church event, and they wanted them to wear white blouses and black skirts instead of their marvelous native costumes. And that really upset me. I thought, what is that about? This Wasatch Front crap of making us all the same? We want to celebrate. So I never said a word to the Africans. I had enough sense to shut my mouth there. But I did try to go up the channels. Because I knew in my heart, if the brethren knew that they were asked to do that, they'd say, oh, for heaven's sakes, let them wear their native dress. But you have to go through all these echelons to get to the brethren. (laughs) And I never made it. You know, it just kept coming back to me. No, they have to. And then uh, just before the performance, they said they they had to wear shoes. Well, all of our sisters wear sandals and flip flops, even in the winter. Sometimes they wear shoes, but at this particular time. And so that really made me mad because the camera was not ever going to shine on their feet. But, you know, blessedly, I shut my mouth and just complied. So we all showed up in our white blouses and black skirts and sang. And uh, after the performance, uh, the next day happened to be Fast Sunday, the next Sunday that we met. And many of the teachers, the African sisters got up and said, oh, it was so wonderful to sing in the big temple, meaning the conference center, for Jesus Christ. And how wonderful it was to know he was there. So I just said, thank you, Heavenly Father, that I shut my mouth and just let this go as it did. Because they had a wonderful experience. It was me that was complaining. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, talk about uh, being that what is a grand marshal of a pride parade? Talk a little bit about how that came about and what that is. Well, I was nominated 30 years after the fact that I had helped establish all those gay and lesbian families by helping them adopt children, which at the time I just thought I was doing my job. It was a wonderful experience because those, you know, they're just such great people. You just learn so much. And you, uh, I had to do all of their, uh, when you do a home study, you have to ask them about their past. Very painful to know of the repression and the persecution and the unkind words and the way our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters have suffered. That was very, very painful. And it made me even more determined, I think, to help them because of their sincerity in wanting to be parents and the fact that they'd really prepared for it. I mean, they took measures to provide daycare that most straight families I helped wouldn't have done. And, and, and true to, you know, I'm still in touch with so many of them and they're just awesome parents. So I got this notice that I'd been nominated. And at first I had to think, what would I be nominated for? (laughs) You know, flying my flag every, you know, all the time. Anyway, so it entailed giving a speech at a rally at the Capitol Steps there were probably about three or 4,000 people there. They just, it just filled the lawn of the Capitol. And that was wonderful because I could tell them about my path to becoming a, an ally and how proud I was to have been there. And I mentioned to you that the other speakers were all gay men, four of whom are my representatives returned LDS missionaries who are married to their husbands. And I have mentioned as part of my wanting them to be part of our congregations is that we need them so much and they need us. And it would be so wonderful if we could worship together in full fellowship. So I had to speak at that. There was a Queen's uh, drag luncheon. There was a parade. I had to ride on a car and wave. I have a terrible wave. I think people thought maybe I was having a spastic fit, but I tried to wave as good as I could. (laughs) Had a big banner. I had to speak at a thing at Washington Square. It was a wonderful experience, and I was so proud to represent my children and grandchildren and all of my gay friends at that event. That's a beautiful story. 
I think of Brene Brown, Braving the Wilderness, which is a book that I've read about people like you that are willing to brave spaces that we don't get exposed to. And then she talks about, and you, this isn't theoretical for you, it's people are hard to hate, close up, move in. And you know that very well. And it's helpful for our listeners. I love, um, you talked about sort of the fear-based stuff you've seen um, to support a, a position. You know, the Vietnam War, Martin Black's, the billboards are up in Salt Lake City. I had a flight this morning and spent some time in an airport in a different state. It was right before the midterms, and it was just, I just took time to watch the local news. Obviously, the day before the midterms, it's all political, but it was just so much fear-based advertising. And I just yeah. think Elder Uchtdorf talks about fear really is the power to change one's heart. And Elder teaches what is right. and. I think fear can create behavior and can create unity, but I think it's not, I think it's just not the Savior's way. I look at his ministry and he created followers, not out of fear, but out of love. Yes. And everywhere he went, he felt, showed inclusion, kindness, compassion. I mean, so your ministry, you won't like this, Suzanne. It's really consistent with Christ's ministry. He was with, you're shaking your head sideways, you just don't like this, but Christ was with everybody that everybody else said he shouldn't be with. He invited them to their table for dinner and he was with them. And that's an example over and over again in his ministry. And and I think more and more people in the world, um, our younger people are wired this way. Um, and it gives me hope for the future of the world but there's sadness in my heart where we are with LGBTQ people. I've, as, you know, these are our own people, as we've had on the podcast. It's not some outside group that's on a billboard right. ready to ruin my straight family. <laughs> They're just wonderful members of totally. our church, um, some totally. that have stepped away, some that haven't, that are in our community. And yeah, there's some straight people that want our church to fail, and there's some gay people that want our church to fail, but just to pin everything on this group of people is unfair. And most of them want to do what you just shared. They just want to build a family. Sure. And I think there's a lot of people in our church that are feel like we're not at the finish line on this issue. And we need to, you talk about those gay men that are serving politically in your district and how much better we'd be off if we had a place for them. Because totally. they bring beautiful, unique, needed contributions. And I think they're part of the body of Christ. And we've, mm-hmm. so... Those of you that feel like we're at the finish line on this, I think that's fine if you feel that way. Those of you that feel like we're not, I think it's fine to pray and do things in your circle of influence to prove things. And that's another volunteer opportunity for any of you out there. Uh, the Pride Festival requires hundreds of volunteers. And anybody, you can help with the rally, you can help with the parade, you can help with the festival on Washington Square. They would love to have you help. I'm already signed up for next year <laughs> to help with the parade. Because it's just a wonderful service opportunity, and you get to know so many great people. Uh, this morning, I was at the Gail Miller Shelter with somebody that I had to take there recently. And they need volunteers. There are just so many opportunities, you know, figuring out what your passion is. But even if not, just expose yourself to some different things and just do volunteer. I don't care if it's reading to the blind, being a big brother, big sister. As I said, mentoring a refugee family. It's hard. It's not all glitzy stuff you want to push on social. You know, kids go to India and help the uh, those afflicted with leprosy, which is a wonderful cause. I really appreciate that organization. But they put it all over social media that they're doing this and doing that. And I don't go in for any of that. I think one time in my uh, whatever years I've put something on social media about my volunteer work. That doesn't mean I'm not happy I'm doing it. But you just do it because seriously, and I mean this with all my heart, if the world ended tomorrow or if I knew it was going to end next week, I'd probably eat more chili rellenos. But I just keep doing what I'm doing because of what it does for me every day. I I don't know what that visit's going to be like with our Savior in the next life, but I 
I think he'll ask how he treated other people. I think he'll talk about the least of these if you've done it unto me. My personal feeling is so much of keeping my covenants is how I go out then and help other people. Mm-hmm. I look at I look at my covenants as horizontal, my interaction with other people and wanting to lift their burdens, be present in their life. And I know as a parent, that's what makes me the happiest is when my kids are supporting each other and supporting I don't just I'm I love the idea and I think Latter day Saints are great at this. Also thought came to my mind in our culture we often pray for and and there's natural support for leaders, local leaders and stake leaders. And I the thought came to mind, listeners, it would be good if to also recognize those that are serving in other ways. And we could pray for them in church meetings. We could talk about how they're serving oh, yes. in ward council. We could there's somebody serving at the homeless shelter. It's outside of it. If it's outside of a church calling, we could ask them to speak about that in church. And it may spark um, an interest in somebody. I think that's in, a great at idea. At least along the Wasatch Front, a lot of wards are pretty deep in leadership. Um, not everywhere. I don't want to make a, that generalized a statement. And with two hour church, there's just less callings to go around. So I think it's a chance for us as Latter day Saints in areas that are like that to. Go out and find other ways to serve as part of our covenants to bear more and comfort, and then kind of culturally in the word celebrate that and support that the same way we do with leaders that have heavy responsibilities and need our prayers. But I would love to just sort of talk about people that serve. I call it LDS tool callings. There's stuff that shows up on our LDS tools when we go look at our callings or others in our ward or stake, and then there's stuff that Latter-day Saints are doing that are a little. It's a little less seen, but needs to be as supported. Um, pray for them and and expose their words to how other people are serving. Other thoughts that come to your mind as we're coming to a conclusion? Just that I know that people all over the place are involved in really great causes. And I see that all the time, uh, LDS and non-LDS. They're just involved in such good things. And I see these foundations and these organizations and Gosh, I just think people are just doing so very much. So whether it's grandiose, you know, cleft palate surgeries in China or just uh, delivering bananas to somebody that needs someone to cheer them up (laughs) that's home from work, there's just so much to do. And I appreciate all the good people. And that's why I said I don't, I should not be acknowledged because I'm not doing anything great and marvelous. I, I do want to just sort of sum up by saying I'm sort of a simple person and I pray every day and I try to repent and I ponder the scriptures. I always sometimes wish there were more car chases in them because I could <laughs> stay more engaged. But <laughs> I love reading uh, gritty mysteries of all kinds and I have brothers that do too, so we share that. But I always have a good book to read. You know, no matter what happens to you during the day, if you have a good book to look forward to at the end of the day, to me, that's just sheer happiness. And I support the arts. You know, I mentioned going to the ballet, going to the symphony to hear Harry Potter. There are so many uh, artistic events along the Wasatch Front. You could just spend your whole time doing it. So I say if you're having a the blahs, and you're feeling angry, you're feeling, well, just take time out and just support the arts. Just take a time out. Go to lots of good movies. You know, get yourself into a good frame of mind. And I always believe in having a church calling because I think you get special inspiration when you have a church calling. And then, as I said already, when all else fails, hot fudge Sundays and chili rellenos. <laughs> and tomorrow, that's election day. So, I'm going to be repenting mightily if certain candidates win, because I'll be so mad. So that's my cross to bear, so to speak. (laughs) I've got to do better in that regard. I love that you're open. We didn't really talk much about this. We've had some lifelong Democrats on the podcast, and someone asked me, why don't you have lifelong Republicans on the podcast? And I go, well, I trying to bring voices that are generally represented as a minority position in our faith. and. There's probably some wards where a Republican would say, wait a second, I'm a minority. But um, I think it's good. I've said this before. Congregations are not an extension of our political party. We need Zion is creating space and 
support for people that are in all political parties. So I, that's one of the tension points. So I'm glad you're a lifelong Latter-day um, Democrat <laughs> and Latter-day Saint. And yes. I think that gives perspective because the data I'm reading is more, especially the younger people compared to people my age are identifying as Democrats. So I think they need role models in the church that, good. that own that politically. And this is why, and I think that's good long-term for the church to have balance with our political membership. And maybe we do better on some of these social issues that have been sort of stumbling blocks for us perhaps in the past on our involvement on some of these social issues that you've talked about that doesn't resonate with you that eventually we've made progress on. So listeners, I'm really glad to have Suzanne Gardner Stott on the podcast. And um, this has been moving for me and I would invite whatever stands out to you to act on your impressions. You don't have to go fight for things now because Suzanne's been in so many things, but you might feel impressed to do one or two things. And it may give you tools also to make your for- path forward as a Latter-day Saint. So Suzanne Gardner-Stodd and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>